Good morning, and welcome to this year's last episode of Mind Matters, our series of abridged talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today, we'll look into China's history from the archaeological perspective. Professor Zhu Wu Chen, the director of Hong Kong Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences and the chair and Chen Yutong Professor in Finance at HKU Business School, will tell us some of the discoveries from the available archaeological data and to investigate how much of modern China was already shaped during the late Neolithic era. Professor Chen was invited by the University of Hong Kong to give a talk entitled what can archaeological data tell us about China's history? You know, many of us did not realize what a wealth of data there is about uh, China's uh, prehistorical uh, time periods. Uh, because about five years ago, when uh, at one of our summer school programs uh, for quantitative history, uh, one of the participants, uh, Yu Xiao, uh, uh, was presenting something about uh, <clears throat> structure uh, of walled cities uh, in prehistoric uh, China. So I was very intrigued. So I asked him uh, whether uh, there's any database anybody collected uh, has collected uh, based on all the archaeological reports uh, done by archaeologists. He said no. But on the other hand, he also told me that uh, you know, the last uh, 30 or 40 years, especially over the last 20 some years, as uh, you know, the different infrastructure booms uh, have been going on in China. First, the highway boom, and then the high speed rail boom, and then the real estate boom that is still going on, and so many infrastructure projects. So many of those projects are accidentally uncovered uh, a lot of uh, archaeological sites. So this is why um, over the last uh, uh, three decades, uh, China uh, uh, has surpassed every other country in terms of uh, the number of archaeological discoveries. So this is why our database uh, collection effort uh, has generated, I mean, has included uh, in our database uh, uh, more than 100,000 uh, archaeological sites uh, with various aspects and a lot of detailed uh, information uh, included uh, in this. I have to say that earlier, uh, 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 Professor Mulan uh, was uh, mentioning the past uh, did not announce the future, right? I, I will show you that actually uh, China's past of uh, 5,000 years ago did announce uh, the future of 5,000 years later it's just that we did not hear it, right? We did not pay attention uh, to that announcement. So let me, just uh, as a way of introduction, a lot of German uh, scholars in the 19th century made very uh, bold statements, especially this one, Hegel. Huh? Chinese history is essentially historyless. It is just a repetition of the overthrow of the monarch. No progress can be produced from it. So in other words, he basically makes the point, uh, China's history is that it has no history. Okay. The present today is also the past uh, many thousand years ago. But I have to say, as a philosopher, he did not really have any data to back up his plan. So I will do some of his uh, he, the work he should have done. And then uh, Skinner, uh, it's actually pretty interesting. You know, Skinner is one of the uh, famous uh, historians uh, who who has proposed also big theories, but his 
may, in, in some ways, uh, his explanation of, of uh, the claim by Hegel, or even though Skinner does not say it this way, is that, okay, yeah, the Chinese history has no history, mainly because, you know, uh, Chinese history has been characterized uh, by repeated uh, cycles of economic development followed by a decline and then again, okay. But nonetheless, uh, he points out what I would consider to be very more interesting characterization by him, that is, uh, northern China followed uh, this uh, Kaifeng-style uh, northern development model, whereas uh, southern China, especially the coastal line, followed this Hangzhou, uh, Suzhou-style uh, southeastern model of development. But more recently, there's a lot of work done by our friends and colleagues trying to understand why events of many centuries ago uh, have uh, uh, continued uh, to have impact on uh, what is happening today across China. Uh, you know, one paper by uh, uh, my colleagues, Tianqing uh, 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 and uh, James Cole and then Shi uh, Chema. But the next one... I have uh, is me, okay, with uh, Mao Shen and then uh, Andrew Sinclair in the back. But let me go back uh, to what I really want to talk about uh, today as a way to reconfirm the uh, predictions or statements by people like Hegel uh, and others. Uh, so if we look at these two maps, this is where I would say we can see that announcement made by the past some 5,000 years ago about the future of 5,000 years later was not heard by anyone, but that announcement has been there. So the left of this screen shows a map of the 126 walled cities. So we can view all those walled cities, walled settlements, huh, as relatively high population density societies that represented uh, the most developed regions 5,000 years ago. So this period covered here uh, goes from uh, 3000 BCE to seven uh, to about 2000 BCE. So over that 1000 year period, 128 uh, relatively developed uh, walled cities uh, emerged. But one thing one thing you can notice is that um, all those 128 cities of the sophisticated, you know, the, the most modern or uh, the best development as of the time, they lie along the Yangtze River and above. So basically, in a general sense, all those early development huh, took place in northern China, but nothing in the south. Huh? So south of the Yangtze River, no walled city as of between 5,000 and 4,000 years ago. But if, we, if you look at the geographical or the spatial distribution of early development uh, 5,000 to 4,000 years ago on the left, and then compare that spatial distribution with one of the recent sort of uh, spatial representation of uh, you know regional development in China. So on the right, you, uh, you see the nightlight density uh, of each region uh, in 2010. If we do, do it today, it will be very similar. So the bright spots, or the bright areas, represent you know high development, uh, high population density, higher income areas. And then the darker regions represent uh, darkness or, or lack of development, so to speak. So you see a lot of uh, uh, similarity between these two maps, uh, even though the two maps are about 5,000 years apart, right? 
The one one big big uh, difference is really the coastal line. So uh, the maritime trade development was the only thing in Chinese history that really broke uh, the patterns of development from 5,000 years ago. No other major changes in terms of uh, the uh, spatial distribution uh, of development. Uh, and then the other two really emphasize that uh, until the Tang Dynasty or even the Song Dynasty period, much of the actions uh, in, in Chinese uh, prehistory and early history really took place in the north. Not, well, I'm going to show that not because of the nomadic war threats, uh, but for other, for, for in, in, uh, intra uh, Greater China uh, uh, warfare. Okay, the north was much better developed not just in terms of higher population density, higher income, but also in terms of intellectual capital and also political human capital development. So here we show the, um, the birthplaces. Uh, the, on the left, we show the birthplaces of the founders of major schools of thought uh, during the Eastern Zhou period, during the uh, spring and autumn period, and then warring states period uh, between 770 and uh, 221 BCE, right before the, uh, the First Empire was uh, established. So you can see that all the early philosophers from the warring states and the spring and autumn periods were from the north, uh, north of the Yangtze River or along the Yangtze River. And then uh, even when we look at the uh, po uh, poets, uh, where they were born uh, during the Tang Dynasty, because we, as uh, children of uh, uh, Chinese families, we all uh, had to learn, uh, remember, uh, uh, memorize a lot of the uh, Tang uh, poems and uh, song essays. Uh. So with the, only a few exceptions, uh, of course, you could say that uh, Maybe by the Tang Dynasty, uh, finally the South had some life, uh, some development. Of course, uh, a few spots here. Uh, well, where is that? Uh, that's uh, Guangdong and uh, Hunan. Uh, but uh, anyway, most of the other ones uh, still lie in the south, uh, in the north. And then, uh, as uh, another sort of uh, way to show how you know how late the development of china was concentrated in the north not so much in the south huh? so here we show the spatial distribution of the top 30 biggest cities in china at different times so as of the uh, year uh, 2 ce uh, you see the top 30 cities were all in northern china especially around shandong and then Henan and uh, uh, maybe the northern part of uh, today's Jiangsu province. So by the middle Tang Dynasty, then there was some shift westward to Chengdu, uh, but but more importantly to the region around the Yangtze River Delta. And then uh, by the northern Song Dynasty, then uh, the development uh, re or the uh, thirty largest cities were much more spread out. And then uh, of course after the northern Song. Then during the Ming Dynasty as of 1580, and then the mid Qing Dynasty uh, 1776, the top 30 cities, uh, the spatial distribution stagnated more or less, just like towards the end of the Northern Song Dynasty. But uh, during the PRC period, mainly because of the last 40 years of uh, reform and, and so on, now you see by 2021, uh, two years ago, uh, 
the top 30 uh, cities now are much more spread or across China. Okay. But here, the main takeaway, I would say, is really uh, to keep in mind that uh, at least until the Tang Dynasty, huh, much of the action of development uh, in development in China was in the north, uh, not so much in the south. How far back in prehistory can we really go huh, to trace the roots of China. We use this criteria to determine when early China really started. So we use the developmental landscape for each uh, for any later time, let's say 2010 or 1851 uh, uh, during the mid-19th century. And then go back uh, to see until when would we not see any correlation anymore between the developmental landscape of some past uh, prehistoric time period and later historical periods. So, so in other words, we want to go back to see when we no longer see the past announces the future. Okay, so so this is what uh, we we try to do. Uh, archaeologists have not done this, so I, I think. Uh, we're the first one to actually uh, propose this criterion as a, as a more objective way to see when early China. I, I know for economists and modern historians, nobody really cares. Uh, when did early China really start? For archaeologists, this is a big question. So when did early China first emerge? <laughs> listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Chen from the University of Hong Kong telling us some archaeological findings from ancient China. Next, he'll continue to explore the modernization of China since the Neolithic era. For the uh, late Neolithic period, or the Longshan period, uh, between 3000 and 1700 BCE, to calculate raw correlation between the population density 5000 to 3,700 years ago, and the population density during the Xia Shangzhou period, for example, here, huh? then the correlation is uh, 54%. Okay, so in other words, those high population density regions uh, 5,000 to 4,000 years ago remained, at least with 54% correlation, remained high population or more developed uh, regions. Okay. And then this correlation uh, gradually declines as we move to later periods. So you can see that uh, by 1851, uh, uh, just uh, you know, right after the first Opium War, so this correlation is still 28%. So which means, you know, if you run a simple prediction, 5,000 years ago, there was an announcement about what was to come, how roughly. Uh, in, around the year 1851, well, that announcement would have a pretty good high accuracy r level of something like 28%. Okay, so I know a correlation of 28% is not considered to be super high, but we're talking about the developmental landscape 5,000 years ago and the developmental landscape 150 years ago. And then, of course, uh, statisticians and uh, econometricians, 
sometimes use rank correlation. So the, the raw correlation may be too optimistic in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, uh, some archaeological sites should have been discovered, but not yet. So there's a lot of selection error involved. So the rank correlation may be less dependent on the completeness and the accuracy of all the archaeological sites. So, so out of the 269 prefectures, we rank 269 prefectures according to their population density level. Okay, that we all only care about the rank, relative rank, rather than the absolute absolute level. So in this case, then the correlation levels are all respectively higher. This should be the case because this captures more the notion that the most developed region uh, 5,000 years ago on China's landmass uh, probably should still remain the top most developed region 5,000 years later, even though the exact population level may differ somewhat uh, in terms of, uh, you know, who would really have the... Uh, anyway, you got, got the point. Let me show you this next uh, chart, uh, which may be more uh, intuitive. Okay, so there are three sets of charts. Okay, so this first set of the two lines reflect the raw correlation, that's the bottom one, bottom line, and then the rank correlation levels in terms of the correlation between the uh, mid-Neolithic period developmental landscape. So the mid-Neolithic, remember, starts from 7,000 years ago and ends at uh, 5,000 years ago. So, so in other words, we use the developmental landscape between 7,000 and 5,000 years ago as the basis to predict what was to come at each of the later time periods. So in other words, you know, if we think that uh, uh, the developmental landscape 7,000 to 5,000 years ago did not change at all, then we should see a flat line of 100%. So whatever happened, of course, when we talk like that, right, here uh, behind this statement, there is this uh, assumption that, well, you know, we can, you know, as, as Professor Xu would get excited about the Han Dynasty or the Tang Dynasty and then Ming, Qing Dynasty, if the correlations uh, on of all the uh, the three sets uh, would stay at one hundred percent, that would tell us does not really matter whether there was a Tang Dynasty or Song Dynasty, Ming Dynasty, and so on, because hey, nothing changed. The name maybe it's changed from Tang to Song and Ming, but in reality, as far as uh, the developmental landscape is concerned, no change. So, but on the other hand. What I want to uh, draw your attention to is, okay, the first two lines drop relatively fast. So by the Tang Dynasty, huh, the correlation uh, goes down to uh, 40%. And then by 1102, the correlation drops below uh, 20%. Okay, so, so in other words, if we want to make the claim that early China uh, started some 7,000 years ago, Probably that claim does not have a lot of statistical support because using the developmental landscape 7,000 years ago, then we cannot explain that much. All the de developmental landscapes after the Tang Dynasty, especially after the Northern Song Dynasty, because it drops down very fast. 
But if we use the uh, late Neolithic as the benchmark, uh, so this goes again from 5,000 years ago to about uh, 4,000 years ago, the two red lines, then they don't drop down towards zero as fast, especially before the 20th century, these two correlations uh, stayed at uh, be somewhere between 20% uh, uh, and 40% uh, for much longer, okay? So this is why we say based on the correlations, uh, probably the mid-Neolithic period did not establish uh, a prototype of what we later call China. Uh, so I don't want to say we th at that time it was called China because otherwise Professor Xu would give me troubles. By the late Neolithic, then things were, were looking pretty good. Of course, some of you may say, well, simple correlations don't really tell us that much because it's possible that some regions anyway were so much uh, better uh, for humanity to live in them, so they should have higher population and so on. So we control for a host of many things, especially if we control for agricultural productivity as represented by these uh, indicators, as well as prefectural fixed effects and uh, terrain ruggedness and so on. And then run regressions with respect to each past period, uh, the mid-Neolithic period, and then we use the uh, late-Neolithic period to predict uh, to exactly predict uh, all the later periods, uh, population densities uh, of each region. So what I want to show you is that statistical significance in using the uh, population density uh, of the late Neolithic to predict each of the historical time points population density, the statistical significance remains very high with uh, three stars. Uh, very significant at the 1% level, all the way up to 1851. So, you know, when we saw this set of results here, at least I was so happy. I was like, wow. Because after 1851, the statistical significance really drops uh, to insignificant. What that means is, you know, all the way until the modernization movement after the OPM war, China was almost exactly like what Hegel was saying. It's no history. Chinese history did not have any history because did not really change that much. There were changes, but hey, you know, we can at least use uh, the developmental landscape uh, 5,000 years ago to still have pretty good uh, predictability of what was to come in all the subsequent uh, almost five millennia up to 1821. So this is why the, the, you know, the introduction of uh, Western technologies and, and uh, Western institutions and many other things really introduced uh, this uh, force to uh, fundamentally uh, change the, uh, the structure of the Chinese society. So, so anyway, so here is a, a quick summary. Uh, so early China did not start before 3000 BCE. So if in some ways, accidentally, this supports more or less the official claim that the Chinese civilization started maybe about 5,000 years ago. I mean, before this research, I did not believe that uh, statement so much. But after seeing all the numbers and, and doing the calculations, then 
I became somewhat more convinced that uh, there is something to that story, especially if we look at uh, the next question, huh? what drove the emergence of Chinese civilization in northern China? By, by civilization, we mean a collection of cultural, social, and organizational innovations that collectively established law and order to make a society less subject to violence of any kind. Okay, so, so here, uh, according to uh, Durant, uh, he calls a civilization. Uh, this is how he defines civilization. So civilization begins where chaos and insecurity end. Uh, in particular, you know, there are many uh, different uh, uh, hypotheses that have been proposed by scholars to uh, try to explain uh, what gave rise to a civilizational development across different societies. But here, let's focus on, on China. At least uh, there are the following four explanations. Hydraulic civilizations by uh, Witt Fogel. So many of you heard about the Dayu Zishui. Dayu was the one who founded uh, the Xia dynasty uh, in order to fight against flooding and uh, uh, manage uh, irrigation more properly. But here, I, I should point out, civilization and the emergence of the state as a polity, these are two different things. A civilization can emerge without having a, a, a political state. Okay, so... So in, in particular here, I want to emphasize that uh, the political states arose uh, in human societies or like in China several millennia later than the, uh, the emergence of early civilization. So this is why uh, in, in this definition, I want to emphasize uh, that the establishment of law and order, that's the key defining element of what we mean by civilization, not necessarily a large uh, a political organization staying at the top uh, of a society. And then war made the state, and the state made war. Of course, uh, Charles Tilly is famous uh, for making this claim based on uh, medieval European experience. But uh, Turkin and his co-authors, they showed actually, you know, military technology, advances in military technology and war threats together were more uh, directly responsible for the emergence of large empires and so on. And then recently, a group of economists make the claim that perishability of domesticated crops was uh, the major driver for the emergence of uh, a civilized order for a given society. Their main logic is that, you know, if the domesticated crops were easily perishable uh, after a few days, then, you know, you would not need to develop complicated rules and governing systems to establish property rights and property boundaries, contractual rules, and so on. But on the other hand, if they domesticated the crops, like rice, wheat, and so on, can be stored for overuse after they are dried, then whether your property, your stored rice and wheat, millet, it's secure or not uh, in terms of uh, whether someone can come in to take it away after, you know, killing your tribe uh, or killing your family and so on, then it becomes uh, a totally different challenge. So how can you establish law and order? Okay, so here is some of the main arguments by Louis Mumford uh, uh, to link uh, the emergence 
of uh, walled cities to the emergence of civilization. Okay. So according to Mumford, uh, the wall was both a physical rampart uh, for defense and a spiritual boundary of even greater significance for it preserved those within from the chaos and formless evil that encompassed them, okay? So once you have a wall uh, forcing uh, a lot of people to live within a very uh, tiny space like uh, Hong Kong, huh? then many unintended things would emerge. That is, the city, almost from its earliest emergence, uh, brought with it the expectation of intensified struggle within. That was Professor Chen from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning in 2024 on Mind Matters.